And then well, up here, that, it's, it's not on me. Yeah. Uh, it's on the yeah, All right, that'd be good if you could be. I'll, I'll get it, don't worry. All right, there we go. Uh, you know, if you're sitting on the floor, I'd really appreciate if you could come up at least within the kind of confi- this kind of circle of the chairs. You can, you don't have to be, you know, conspicuous, but it just. There's lots of rumor over here on the sides. It just makes it feel a little, little bit more of a community here. Um, so welcome. Uh, this is the Dharma and Recovery class. Uh, I'm Kevin Griffin. It's a monthly class. We have it here at Spirit Rock, the second Friday of every month, and, and I'm the, uh, the lead teacher. Uh, last month we had a substitute. Was anybody here last month? For Laura, what, how was she? I mean, I, I love Laura. She's Laura Burgess is a teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center, and she's very much steeped in the steps and in Dharma. And uh, so I've never had any bad reports on her. But then again, people tend to say nice things about Dharma teachers. Um, so welcome. Um, how many people here are here at Spirit Rock for the first time? Okay, wow. And how, how many of you are here at this class for the first time? So, oh, well, there's more people who are at the class for the first time, right? So, so um, I think there ought to be a warning at the door when I teach, but they haven't written that up. Did you give that? Thank you, Shane, yeah. Um, Anyway, I'm not sure what the warning would be. That's, I guess, why we haven't figured it out. But um, I will say, let me just start off by saying I want to thank the Nobel Committee for distracting us for a few minutes from our long national nightmare um, and reminding us that there are great things that come out of our culture. Um, I... I, one of my activities today is the people who know me, and, and if you've written, read my books, you know I'm a, a musician, so I, I almost brought my guitar, but I just couldn't find a Dylan song that I uh, felt comfortable performing. But, uh, but I sang, you know, I was sort of at home like singing Dylan songs and listening to Dylan songs today. And, uh, yeah, uh, He's a pretty amazing guy. He's like 75 and he's just tours, <laughs> you know, year round. He's crazy. Uh, and I know you didn't come here to hear about that, but uh, that's why I should warn you. <laughs> you might not get what you want. I, um, w- what we will be doing tonight is we'll meditate for a while, which pre- I hope you came for that. Um, and I'll, I'll give some guidance with the meditation, and, and uh, maybe we'll talk about meditation a bit. And um, you know, I was thinking about what I would talk about tonight. I I don't do a lot of preparation because I like to just speak from the heart and just kind of have a a theme. But I was thinking about how hard it is 
right now to um, uh, to the, the, uh, the, I can't pretend that oh we're here at Spirit Rock like the rest of the world disappears, you know, um, and and we are in a, a terrible time in our our country as it seems to sort of be every election year, but uh, but the layers of uh, disturbance and now what I think is becoming you know, kind of an epidemic of uh, kind of PTSD, I think. I think, there, I think a lot of people are feeling trauma. Um, and, uh, and so that, uh, that I don't think should be ignored uh, without even talking about politics uh, to recognize that we're all affected deeply by the... Unless, you know, you're one of those people who just doesn't pay attention... I, I personally, I'm interested in politics. I don't, I rarely watch the television news, but uh, I got hooked up tonight, this week, and uh, now, I'm, now I'm all in there. But, well, mainly, I blame that on the Giants, you know. If the Giants were in the playoffs, then I could pay attention to that, but it's like, okay, what am I supposed to, you know, preseason NBA games? I mean, come on. You know, I need NHL, forget it. So this just becomes, I'm sorry. But uh, there you are. And, and finally, I, you know, Bruce Bochy taking that picture out. Anyway, we won't discuss it. it was a, that was another, that was a, a local trauma. And I know some of you are suffering from that. I get depressed when my sports team loses. I don't know about you guys. I mean, it's... Again, if you're lucky enough to not like sports, you're much better off. So, oh yeah, we're going to meditate. But I do have, I have a pretty, I think I have a pretty good theme to talk about. We'll see if I actually talk about it. But, um, because I thought, well, yeah, we can't pretend that's not there, but we can agree that we come here as a place of refuge. And this is a, a term used in the Buddhist world um, that's about uh, being safe. Um, so could I get someone to close the back door and maybe even go out there and ask people out there to be quiet because we're med- going to meditate and this is supposed to be a meditation center and People seem to forget that. The place is so big now, it's kind of like a big cocktail party. And like, you know, it's like, no, actually, no. Came here to get away from cocktails. What, Shane? And ready to go. Yeah. I guess, in a way, I'm fired up. I feel fired down, too. If that's a thing. All right, well, so we'll sit. So just... Hmm. 
thing up so I can turn it off when I want to. Oh, no, I can do it with that. Okay, sorry. Okay, so. <clears throat> the starting point is just how you're sitting and feeling your body sitting. You know, it's helpful to close your eyes to do that, although it's fine to sit with your eyes open if you're more comfortable that way. Just not looking around. And so closing your eyes and just feeling how your body is situated, whether you're on a cushion or a chair or some other seating arrangement. Just acknowledge how comfortable you are, whether you're seated in a, a way that you can maintain for 30 minutes or so. You want to be sitting in a way that's balanced. You're not tipped forward, backward, or to either side. That you're not putting too much stress on any part of the body. You want to be careful to take care of your knees and other joints. And then kind of tune in to just the, if you can sense the energetic state of your body. So is there a sense of brightness awakeness or fatigue or dullness and that energetic state can also reflect something emotional like anxiety or restlessness or sadness depression all those States manifest in the body and this kind of energetic states. And with mindfulness, we're not trying to fix anything or create some special experience. It can be very difficult to fully take in as we learn the practice. That certainly the starting point, at least, of our practice is acceptance. And I'd say exploration of what is. So even when we focus on the breath or start to try to develop some concentration or calm, that's only part of the intention in our practice. We really want to learn to be at ease with and accepting of whatever is happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or kind of vague and difficult to even discern. So that kind of simple question of how do you feel is a good one to kind of check in with from time to time 
as you're sitting? How do I feel? And that, of course, has levels of meaning when we use the word feel. Feeling refers to sensations. Feeling refers to emotions and mood. You know, mood being a more kind of background experience and emotion being something more striking or really uh, something that's kind of caught, you're caught in. So how do you feel? And then it can refer to just kind of how your day was, you know, that you feel stressed or you feel exhausted or you feel excited, stimulated. Or you might not know when it comes down to it. You might not even really be able to Name how you feel. When I started doing this practice, I was surprised to find one of my teachers asked me to pay attention to how I felt, that I really didn't know how to do that. Or even what exactly that meant. When we talk about emotions or moods, are we talking about a mental state? Not exactly. Are we talking about a physical experience? Not exactly. Some combination of these. So it seems that the easiest way to access some kind of answer to the question of what am I feeling is to take the attention into the body. It's hard to feel your mind. So we breathe. We breathe into the body. We feel the breath in the body. And we discover that by feeling the breath, it can give us access into feeling more, into feeling emotion or mood.
In this way, when we start to connect breath with feeling, we can make our practice more integrated. If we just try to pay attention to the breath and then thoughts, and the breath or the practice can become something kind of isolated or that we're trying to hold off the rest of our experience. And the problem with that is that you can only suppress for so long. And then the feelings start to ooze out. Or sneak up behind you. Rather than trying to go into some special meditation state just with the breath, some pure, empty place that we imagine (coughs) exists, I'd rather suggest that you open yourself to the wholeness of your experience. The wholeness that includes breath and includes feeling, includes thoughts, reactions, the whole flow of experience. So the body becomes our gateway into this awareness. And as we open to that, we start to see the subtle life of the body. So using the breath, as a kind of anchor or a wave of movement and sensation. We breathe with each moment. We breathe into each moment. Just as the body has a life of energy, so too does the mind. Our thoughts, 
flow just like the flow of energy in the body. Just a stream of thought. Sometimes the stream slows down or gets deep and still. But we're not in conflict with that stream, with the life stream of body and mind. It's only when we try to turn that stream or put dams in the stream make it run backwards. The dukkha arises, the sense of unsatisfactoriness or not okayness. But as we sit, something will come up that will seem unacceptable. Like I can work with this and this, but not this. No, I can't just accept this. I need to fix this. And certainly you can sometimes let go. You certainly can direct the attention back to the breath and kind of engage engage the breath with a little bit more effort. But as soon as that turns into an effort at control, you've really lost your you're creating your own suffering.
So enjoy the breath, enjoy the body, the felt experience of life. Come back to the breath when you find yourself lost, spinning out in thoughts. But don't add on to that. Don't add on, particularly don't add on self-judgment. But if you do, see if you can accept that. When we find ourselves judging our own judging, this is when we know we're completely caught in a self-view. And truly, this can be a moment of humor when we see the absurdity of the mind's effort to be good, to do it right, to get a good grade. Meditation is not a competition. not trying to get good at it. Then what? If I'm not trying to get good at it, what am I trying to do?
Does anyone else have ants crawling on them when they're meditating? Maybe I brought them from home. You know, this weather, they come inside. Maybe I was hallucinating. One never knows. Strange things happen when you're meditating. So I'd like to open it up for questions about practice uh, after the sitting. Oh, you have a microphone for them? Great. Thanks, Shane. So uh, any questions? Um, You know, you can, whether there's a question about the instructions or your own experience or what you're trying to, uh, what you're doing or any difficulties or challenges you feel for practice. There's one back there. One sec. Uh, I know, know there are a lot of um, meditation apps out there. Um, uh, but, you know, every type, you know, mindfulness, um, just guided meditations, that kind of thing. Are there any you'd recommend? Are there any recommended meditation apps? Yeah, I mean, just something. Well, Insight Timer is the only one that I'm really that familiar with, and I okay. do have a couple of guided meditations on there. So, it, What was again? Insight Timer. Thank you. Started out as just a bell, but they tell me I've been getting emails from them that they're going to monetize. There's also Dharma Seed. Uh, Dharma Seed. Uh, it's a website here that has all kinds of guided meditations that you can go to and find all kinds of the teachers. Kevin may even be on. But it's not an app, you know. It's a website. Yeah, Dharma Seed. D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D dot org um, is a, a, um, a site that has thousands of talks that probably plenty of them include guided meditation, but most of them are talks. So There's a whole section of guided meditations. Is there? Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, there you go. They've been around since the time when you used to have to write to them and send them money and they would send you a cassette tape. I have some of those, or I did have some. You mentioned that when uh, you attempt to control your breathing, that you would, that you're attaching to suffering or something of that nature. Can you explain that further? Yeah, good. Thank you for asking that. So, I think we, uh, not so much control your breathing, but rather control what happens in your meditation. So, you know, it's natural that, you know, you come in here to learn some kind of a skill that you are hoping is going to have some benefits. Just put that in the most general terms. Um, And so that then, uh, which isn't an unreasonable thing to think, uh, but it sets us up for this where we see ourselves as being responsible for what happens. Like the teacher gave the instructions, and if I follow them, then I should get the results that I expect, that I want. 
right? And again, in most activities, that's a reasonable expectation. You know, you'd follow the instructions and you get what you signed up for or what you paid for, whatever. But with meditation, it doesn't really work like that because there's an inherent contradiction within the practice of meditation, which is that meditation is about letting go. And trying to make something happen is about being attached to results. So if we go into meditation being attached to the results of our meditation, we're actually moving further away from the result that we want. Because we're caught in grasping or aversion, or the very qualities that make meditation not successful, you know, that bring about the agitation or disturbance or what we call dukkha, which is translated as suffering. So the, it requires this subtlety of effort and attention to, to make effort that isn't grasping. Um, that isn't trying to control the experience. That I'm trying to do the best I can, but not with an expectation. So this is one of the reasons why that connects with, the, with recovery concepts. It's kind of the third step in the 12 steps. If you don't know the 12 steps, the third step is we turned our will and our, our lives over to the care of... We tr- I'm sorry... <laughs> We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So in this case, we'll take God out of the situation and say, turned our will and our lives over to the will of the Dharma or of truth or of mindfulness, whatever. I'm turning it over. I'm turning, uh, turning over the results. I'm, I'm just doing my part and trusting that if I do the next right thing, if I show up and follow the instructions to the best of my ability, that some good thing will happen at some point. And I don't know what that is necessarily or when. I don't get to control any of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's one of the things that makes it difficult, especially in the beginning of practice before it starts to really take root in your whatever, your experience in your brain and your your awareness that you're kind of doing this mechanical thing and at first it might not seem as if anything is happening and then it's like, well, am I doing it wrong? And maybe I need to try harder and we can get all into that cycle of effort. Um, so it's, it's really just, uh, it, the practice is simple and, and it is something that we need to keep it simple and just kind of show up and turn over the results. Yeah. Over here to your left. What is the difference uh, in your mind between meditation and mindfulness? Well, mindfulness, I don't like 
trying to define mindfulness, but I'll talk about it a little bit. Mindfulness is, uh, well, the difference, in, in, to, to simply answer your question, is that mindfulness is something that can be aroused or engaged in under any circumstances. Whereas meditation is a formal practice that's got certain, uh, you know, kind of almost ritualistic elements to it. And, and you can be mindful, you can practice mindfulness meditation, but there are other kinds of meditation than mindfulness meditation. For instance, concentration practice, you know, visualization or, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But mindfulness is something that we can be mindful, meaning we can be present and uh, sort of observing our experience, not caught in grasping or aversion in any circumstance, right? Does that make sense? Does that answer the question sufficiently? Okay, because I'm willing to say more if, if you wanted more. But, uh. So uh, it's true that we often, like, I, one of my, one of the teaching uh, venues I have, if you will, is an online course that's uh, run by an organization called Mindful Schools. And they explicitly, they don't use, they're strictly secular, and they don't use any Buddhist language, and they don't even use the word meditation. So it becomes, you know, when I talk about mindfulness in that course, you know, I, I kind of have to separate. It's like, for, then I have to talk about like formal mindfulness, you know, from informal mindfulness, you know, uh, which is kind of pretty artificial. Yeah. Okay. You get one more. So I, do, I do have another thought on that uh, question, or another question on that question. So it sounds like in some way they're both, uh, meditation is a, is a, a subset, uh, mindfulness is a subset or a part of a wider umbrella of meditation. But also the opposite seems to be true, that if mindfulness can be done anywhere, then any meditation you... Right. So they're each a subset of each other, kind of. In a way, yeah. yeah. I mean, meditation is a more general term. You know, and it's not nearly as definable. It's not even a term that's used in the early Buddhist teachings. They talk about bhavana, which kind of implies practice. But mostly when the Buddha talks about meditation, he either talks about mindfulness or concentration or both. But he doesn't really say meditation. He says contemplation, actually. That's the word they translate a lot of times. So, um, but this gets technical. So, so um, let's take a little break and we'll uh, can stretch and do whatever you need to do for a few minutes and then we'll ring a bell and come back and uh, give you a little talk on refuge.
serious bell there. <sighs> All right, so um, it's interesting, uh, you know, just how how energy changes as as the seasons change. And there's really a sense, sure, for many of us today and tonight that that we really are vented into the, the new season. I'm not sure we call it. I, I, I think we just have a dry, dry season and a rainy season in Northern California, so I'm going to say we're in the rainy season. But uh, it's also the, you know, the season of darkness. As the sun, as the sun goes lower, lower in the sky, and days become shorter, and I, I always found, uh, you know, as a teenager, I started to s- suffer what, from what I think what we now call season effect, seasonal affective disorder. I still feel that sometimes, just a, a sort of energetic shift. Uh, it's a time when I start to read more 19th century novels and uh, a little Dostoevsky, you know, something really bleak. But as I said at the beginning of the evening, you know, in these troubling times, uh, when the world seems to be going mad uh, or more mad, um, coming to a place like Spirit Rock is meant to be a refuge. It's meant to be a place, as I say, not exactly where we're you know, pretending that's not there, but that a place that helps us to look at the world through a different lens. And this is why we have this word refuge. So refuge is a term that the Buddha used and his followers would use. So when someone would become a follower of the Buddha, they would hear him give a talk or they'd have a conversation with him and they would get really inspired. And they would say, I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dharma for refuge. I go to the Sangha for refuge. So the Buddha, of course, at that time, we were t- talking about the, this person there, this inspiring teacher. But the word Buddha, this was just... This isn't, the Buddha didn't call himself the Buddha, actually. He called himself the Tathagata, which is a whole other story. But the word Buddha itself, which became applied to him after his enlightenment, just means uh, awakening or uh, someone who is awake. So today we use the, ter- the idea of taking refuge in Buddha as actually the idea of taking refuge in our own potential for awakening or, or even the level of awakeness that we might have. So a simple way to put it is to say that I, rather than refuge, which I think it's a beautiful word and, and, and has a deep, kind of, uh, there's something very deep about it, 
but uh, to, to put it in simple terms, that we are, if we're going to say that mindfulness is about being awake, right? It's a less, a more prosaic term than enlightened, but let's say that we're, when we take refuge in Buddha, we could say, we're kind of saying that we're making a commitment to try to be mindful. You know? So we're trying, and that means, like, as we were talking about, with, as I talked about step three before, that, we're, that we trust that if we are just awake and present and mindful, that that's in some way a protection for us. And we can see, actually, that in very practical terms, being awake and aware and conscious is a protection. You know, if you're walking down the street and you're not paying attention to where you're going, you step into the street, you know, you can get hit by a car, right? Just because you're not paying attention. I mean, it's a simplistic idea, but it's the same thing when we're driving. We know nowadays, you know, people get killed all the time. Apparently, one of the leading, maybe the leading cause of death in automobile accidents now is people paying attention to something other than the road. That is, they're paying attention to their little device, right? So, so in a very practical, real sense, taking refuge in mindfulness protects us. But more, in more of a spiritual sense, taking refuge in mindfulness or taking refuge in the Buddha is connecting with ourselves, with our own mind, so that we see that when I'm aware and a thought arises, I can be protected from that thought if it's a destructive or negative, you know, angry or self-hatred, judgmental thought, that if I can see that mindfully, I can let it go, and that protects me from that negativity. Or if I, or if I think, oh, you know, a drink would be really good right now, and I'm mindful of that, I'm protected, Right? But again, if I'm not attentive, if I'm not aware, I'm just operating on automatic pilot. I'm just being driven by impulse, by all those more subconscious cravings. And so uh, mindfulness protects us in that way. But what the Buddha, when the Buddha talked about refuge... So let me explain the other terms. So dharma, there's refuge in Buddha, dharma, and sangha. Dharma refers to the truth in a general sense, but more specifically in the the truth that the Buddha taught, so the teachings of the Buddha. And taking refuge in the dharma then means trying to live in harmony with those teachings. And then the sangha is the community that arises out of this tradition and taking refuge in that, being um, part of that community, taking support from that community, and also giving service and support to that community. So we, we know in the 12-step in the world, of course, this is kind of the main refuge, right, is the community, is the sangha or the fellowship. But what the Buddha would talk about and what he talked about, particularly at the end of his life, when people said, well... Who's going to be your successor? And that was kind of like asking, you know, the Buddha, who, who's going to be the next Buddha? 
And he was like, uh, no, <laughs> there's nobody out there. I'm sorry. I mean, there were many people who became enlightened through the Buddha's teachings during his lifetime, but there's something different from being enlightened and being a Buddha. Like the Buddha said that, you know, you can, he, he has this image where he's talking about um, how much he knows versus how much he teaches. So he's in the forest, he picks up a handful of leaves and he says to the followers that are with him, which is greater, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? And of course they all go, well, the leaves in the forest. And he says, yes, and the, my, what I teach you is like the leaves in my hand. What I know is like the leaves in the forest. So what we understand, first of all, is that the Buddha... And what he says is, you don't really need to know all that. What, in order to become enlightened, you just need to have this much. So it's, it's kind of interesting that, that um, it, the implication is that the, the Buddha has this really all-encompassing wisdom. I'm not going to say omniscient, but, but very broad wisdom. But what really sets apart a Buddha from just a, an ordinary enlightened being... <laughs> Uh, if we could all just be ordinary enlightened beings, is that a Buddha is a world teacher. And a Buddha is somebody who is more or less, we could say, establishes a religion or a tradition that then takes root and lasts for thousands of years. It's said that the Buddha's teachings will last for 5,000 years. So we're about halfway through before they'll be forgotten, which is a scary thought. But anyway, we won't be around unless we're like reincarnated. But anyway, that was... So what the Buddha said when his followers said, well, who's going to be our teacher? He said, the Dharma will be your teacher. And the Dharma is your refuge. You know, go to the Dharma for refuge. So what did that mean? You know, how, how is the Dharma going to be our refuge? So the, there's a lot <laughs> we can say that the Dharma encompasses. But to start with, you know, the core teaching is the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. The truth that there is suffering in life and that there's a wide swath of suffering, particularly our psychological suffering, which is caused by our own mental tendencies to grasp and to push away experiences. That's the second noble truth. First noble truth is that there is the suffering. Second is that it's caused by this, these tendencies. The third noble truth is that if we stop acting on those tendencies, then freedom is possible. And then the fourth noble truth is the path to accomplish that task. And this is called the Eightfold Path. And so, you know, many of the teachings are in lists. The teachings were originally an oral transmission. And so to remember them, the monks organized them in these, in these lists. And the Buddha taught them in very systematic ways. So that was easy for them to remember. But uh, this is the starting point. And just with this teaching on the Four Noble Truths, we can 
find a lot of refuge because it helps us, first of all, just to see the world. If we see the world through this lens of the Four Noble Truths, it can help us to, to understand it. And first of all, the first thing to understand is that the Buddha was talking about this now about 2,600 years ago and that we see it still happening today. So what we can understand is that as disturbing as our world might be right now, as crazy as it might be, essentially the same stuff was going on back then. I mean, it's kind of shocking, some of the stories. There's one story about um, a king, or he was a prince, and one of the Buddha's followers who was kind of off, (laughs) uh, and he actually tried to take over from the Buddha, convinced this prince that he should kill his father so he could become king. And he did that. He killed his father. And then... His son killed him. And it went off on for generations. <laughs> and, you know, so if we think it's bad here, what if, like, our leaders were just, like, killing each other? You know, uh, I mean, some of them have been killed, but not in a while uh, that I can recall. Um, you know, and I, I, if you look at, for instance, English history, you know, for hundreds of years, it was just one guy knocking off another guy or, you know, uh, saying, well, I really should be king. You know, you're not really king. And then raising an army and coming in. and You know, it was not smooth. You know, it wasn't a pretty thing. So so, uh, the madness of the world has been going on for a long time. And so when we have these Four Noble Truths, we start to see, oh, well, the reason this has been going on like this is because humans have these tendencies. So now we're stepping out of this personal view or even a, you know, um, taking our own time personally, our own culture personally, and see, oh, it's not, you know, this idea of like, well, my country, you know, what? (laughs) What? Sort of, I don't quite really understand that whole thing. It's like it's actually like a planet with a bunch of people on it, and you know, borders are like, you know, just things that people imagine are there. There's nothing there. Anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, we see that the second noble truth is kind of your doorway in here. Okay, the second noble truth says that we have this tendency. To, to either seek after pleasure or get rid of pain. Now, what brings you pleasure is the question, right? So what we, see, what we seek after, of course, there's sensual pleasure. A lot of us fell into that trap as an answer, right? But further, what we see is there is the desire for control, so there's basically the desire for sex, other forms of sense pleasure, and there's the desire for power and the desire for money. So power is about control. So the political system is just a bunch of people acting out, to a great extent, their desire for control. 
And if we look at them and judge them, it's a good thing, good idea for us to also put ourselves in the mirror and say, do I ever try to control anything? You know, it's like the Tears for Fears song, everybody wants to rule the world. You know, yeah, it's not that really that we want the job. Like there's one of the candidates I don't think he actually wants the job, he just wants like to rule the world, right? And so we, so we have this craving, we see that we have it, and then we see that people who get taken over by it, or for whom that's a big part of who they are, it just you know, blows up. And, and there's, as addicts, we kind of understand this, that when we get caught up in a cycle of craving or a cycle of aversion, that we kind of lose perspective. You know, that idea of one drink is too many and a thousand isn't enough. It's like, I need more power. No, I need more power. You know, oh, it was good being mayor, but I think I want to be, like, congressman. Yeah, it was good being congressman. I want to be senator. No, now that I'm senator, you know, I think I'd like to be, like, run, uh, uh, you know, be secretary of state or... um, I don't want to sound like Secretary of Defense. Let's get somebody. So no, and now I want, well, if I'm president, then I'll be in control. And of course, what happens to somebody when they become president? The first thing they realize is all the control they don't have. And how frustrating that must be. It's like, why don't we have a king? I, don't, I know, I want to be king, right? I want to be queen. So that's, you know, one way of just seeing what's, uh, understanding the, the turmoil. It's just human, you know, tendencies. So taking refuge in that, the, the freedom that comes is the freedom of understanding. And what that means is that when we really look at how we suffer, one of the ways that we really suffer is when we don't understand why things are the way they are. That's, I think, one of the most painful human experiences when we don't understand. Why am I like this? You know, when you go into therapy, it's like, why am I depressed? Why do I have this anxiety? It's, these are the questions, right? And, and we try to dig up these answers and come to some understanding. It's not that the Dharma, that understanding the Dharma or even having some enlightenment experience removes the difficulties of the world or removes feelings or makes you, fixes you. It's that it changes your perspective. You're no longer in this relationship of confusion and trying to control. There's a letting go that happens. There's a, a sense of... Um, well, I, when we understand, then it's possible to accept. It's very hard to accept things when we, when we don't understand them. So the... You know, this is something I've been just kind of reflecting and talking about a lot, how the Buddha talks about 
non-attachment, not clinging in relationships. That, or, or well, what he says, I, I shouldn't even say that. What he says is that, you know, being attached to people causes suffering. But I don't really, really think that what he's trying to say is that, you know, if you if you have children, don't just don't be attached to them, you know. Don't be attached to your partner. You know, just like that doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that what he's saying is that if you think that, that this relationship is going to give you a permanent sense of satisfaction and happiness, then you're going to encounter suffering because it's going to change. And the obvious way it's going to change is that somebody's going to get sick and die, right? But uh, you know, I've been going through this with my daughter who just uh, started at co- college. Um, and even though she only moved three miles away from our house, <laughs> she's a world away, you know. And, you know, I can really see the attachment I had to, to having her in my life. But more than that, like kind of having this, uh, to some extent, control. And I think that's one of the things that's really difficult in parenting, that we, we start out and we feel as if we're kind of sort of controlling them. Like we can't control when they spit up on us and stuff. But, but we're sort of like, oh, well, I'll put them in this school and I'll take them to this class and I'll have them study, you know, uh, ballet would be nice. Maybe they should learn to take piano. We kind of like move them around, you know, put them in places. And there's this kind of sense like we're running, we give them what, the, here's the food you're going to eat, we give them their clothes, you know. But gradually, <laughs> if we're not paying attention, we don't see this happening, gradually they become independent of us, you know. <laughs> and uh, and s- suddenly for some of us, <clears throat> there's a realization like, oh, man. I am not in control. And then when you look back, you realize, oh, I never was. Oh, that's interesting. Huh, another illusion shattered. But the point isn't, I don't think that we should be attached to or love these people that, were, that are part of our lives, our parents, our children, our partners, our friends. I think the point is that we should understand that there isn't, that this isn't, going to be the source of constant joy. You know, people, oh, my children, I love my kids. Yeah, but aren't there times when you hate them? Well, yeah, but I mean, that, no, I mean, you know, to understand that. And then it's not nearly as painful when things change. I mean, I have to say that I have been taking refuge in the Dharma repeatedly around my feelings about my daughter. And what I mean by that is that when I get caught, I remind myself. It's just like coming back to the breath, right? I just I bring myself back to the Dharma. I remind myself, oh, this is the natural way of things, that things change, that beings grow, you know? And and further to recognize as a parent that what what was my job, you know? The the point of parenting isn't to make parents happy. You know, the point of having kids isn't, wow, I'm so happy because I have kids, they make me so happy. 
Well, you know what? That's a really narcissistic view of the world. <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, the point of having children is 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 to be of service, actually, right, to this other being. So I didn't mean to get into, you know, making it about a kid, but it's just an example of how taking refuge in Dharma is about changing perspective and our relationship to our experience. It's not about changing the experience itself. So the world is going to go on, you know. The madness of the world will go on. And it's up to us how we relate to that. You know, what are we going to do about that? I didn't vote until I was 34 because I had this idea that it's just, you know, bull, you know. And, you know, I... I mean, the first year that I was, could have legally voted was 1972. If you know anything about what was going on then, it's like, you know, I mean, a year later, two years later, our, the guy who was elected was impeached, you know. So um, there was this, you know, my generation, there was a lot of disillusionment. Um, but that was another form of attachment, you know. That was... Uh, because, I, well, I bring it up really because there can be an idea that, oh, the spiritual thing is to just not do anything. You know, it's like, oh, that's all worldly. And I'm spiritual. I'm not really involved in that. You know, I'm just living my life and, you know, I don't pay attention to all that. Uh, it's you know, it comes back to this question of right effort. Like, that's kind of like meditating and saying, rather than, oh, I'm going to pay attention to my breath, it's just, I'm just going to sit and hang out. Whatever happens, happens, you know. I'm not really in control anyway. What's the point? I mean, whatever. I'm just here. So that's not really meditating, right? That's kind of, that's being passive. You know, the challenge with meditation is that we somehow have to figure out a way to make an effort and not get attached to the effort. It's the same thing with the world and politics. How can I be engaged in politics without creating suffering? I mean, this is why the organization, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, arose out of the progressive movement of the 60s that a lot of people who were politically engaged in the, in the 60s. In the 70s, they started to become spiritually engaged. And they started to see that there was this problem with their political engagement, that it was coming out of the same energy that they were trying to fight. It's like, give peace a chance, God damn it. You know, it's like, that's not really peaceful, is it? So it's that principle I think Einstein has that you can't change consciousness with the same consciousness that you created the problem. Anyway, hopefully that made sense. You know, as the Buddha says, hatred is never ended by hatred. It's only by love that it's ended, right? So the Buddhist Peace Fellowship arose. People said, wow, how can we be engaged in social and political issues without being driven 
by greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, uh, by an attempt to control. And this is, so then this, the movement called Engaged Buddhism arose out of this. Which I, for which I, you know, I have tremendous respect. And uh, I think it's one of the really cutting-edge elements of, of Buddhism and of, and of contemporary Western Buddhism. Uh, because there are times when Asian Buddhism does turn into this more passive thing where it's like, oh, it's just worldly stuff. You know, we're not involved in that. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of proud of the Western Buddhists who have tried to be engaged in that way. We even see, you know, a great example of that, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of the great uh, translators of the Pali Canon, the, the foundation of the Theravadan Buddhist traditions, which is kind of what this place comes out of. Bhikkhu Bodhi spent decades translating these ancient texts in order for Westerners to be able to study the original Buddhist teachings. He's had an incredible effect on Western Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism. Some years ago, I don't know, it may be as much as a decade ago, but some years ago, after he'd been doing this for since the 70s, he kind of, he just took this turn and he, and he kind of realized that he needed to get engaged and he started something called the, uh, oh boy, uh, I, I give them money every month but I'm trying to, Buddhist, anybody know Bhikkhu Bodhis? Anyway, it's an organization that raises money to feed hungry people, you know, in Asia. So that's, you know, he's became, went from being the scholar monk to being totally engaged. And it's like, kind of blew me away. I was, when he did that, I just kind of went, wow, this guy is kind of my idol, you know, (laughs) that someone who could be so deeply enmeshed, it's so easy to just stay in your books, you know. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. Sorry, Paul Simon. I am a rock, you know. Uh, to stay in that, uh, but to come out of that and then say, no, I'm going to really try to be of service. So this is our challenge. You know, this is uh, the challenge for each of us, I think, is to to stay engaged without being overwhelmed, uh, to uh, be of service without expectation or without trying to control. Um, and to, and to find that refuge within us, to find that refuge in the Buddha, in our own hearts, in our own uh, compassion, in our own wisdom, in our own potential for awakening and peace. Um, to have this, to have this uh, refuge uh, makes... Uh, our relationship to the world, it changes everything, even as nothing changes, but it changes uh, our whole inner life and our, our whole uh, way of being in the world. So, uh, I think that's enough for now. Um, maybe, actually, I have one more piece I'm going to talk about.
as I was thinking about taking refuge in Dharma, there's a lot of different kind of lists and teachings we could look at. But one that I thought was really relevant here, and, and particularly when I looked at it, to look at the specifics of it, um, it seemed incredibly relevant. So this is a teaching uh, called the, the uh, Paramitas or the Perfections, the Ten Perfections. And these are qualities that it's said the Buddha perfected in himself. And so they're kind of uh, qualities that we are encouraged to cultivate in our own lives. First one is generosity. So the generosity, both material and spiritual and emotional. And the Buddha talked a lot about generosity as kind of a foundation behavior and attitude that was directly connected to his teaching on letting go. So really makes sense. And the next perfection is morality. You know, and recovery is, you know, really intimately involved with our morality. Our addiction is very involved with our morality. But, you know, one of the things that I've noticed that people outside of the recovery world don't understand is that that recovery doesn't mean just stopping a particular activity. It really is about changing our whole attitude towards life. We talk about, you know, lying, cheating, and stealing, that kind of just the, the ways that we behaved as addicts. We have to change all of that. And we don't, I think, in meetings maybe talk about morality specifically. Maybe we don't use that term. But that's really a lot of what we're talking about here, doing the next right thing. Because no spiritual practice uh, is, has any real depth unless there's a foundation of morality. And the next um, paramita is renunciation. So renunciation is a strong term, but it fundamentally means letting go, learning to let go. Uh, in recovery, at least those who are addicted to a substance we're practicing renunciation with our substance, right? And we know how powerful that is. Um, but it's also, the renunciation is founded in the understanding that there's never enough, right? And that if I keep pursuing, it's, you know, more of anything, that I'm just creating more grasping and more suffering. And so it's a practice to play with letting go. And a lot of people in recovery I see do that. You know, they, they let go of one of their major addiction, but very often we kind of go, oh, like this isn't too cool either. The way I eat, maybe if you're, it's like alcohol is your addiction. Like, oh, and this smoking thing isn't working so well. And, you know, th- we start to go through uh, kind of uh, letting go of a lot of destructive things. So, um, 
But, but that fundamental idea that is one of the delusions of human behavior and particularly a big one in our country that if you just get more money and stuff, you're going to be happy. It's just really going against that uh, belief, renunciation. Uh, the next uh, paramita is wisdom. So just understanding, and, and it's understanding the Four Noble Truths and seeing uh, how suffering arises and how it ends. The next one is energy. And, and energy doesn't mean having a lot of energy. <laughs> it means having a balanced energy, being able to be engaged uh, and balanced. Uh, and, and not to dissipate energy. To, to respect energy and care for energy, you know, to get rest that we need, but also not to uh, waste it. The next one I don't even want to talk about is patience. I, I actually one time was make, uh, wanted to make a list of the imperfections, and that was going to be the first on my list, impatience. But patience, which is not about I'm just going to wait until, you know, I'll just be patient. It's really about what we call uh, the long-enduring mind, continuing to show up. It's showing up one day at a time. Again, not expecting results, but you know, doing your best and, and um, having this attitude of acceptance. And the next parameter is truthfulness. The interesting thing about truthfulness is that you have to figure out what's true to be truthful. And our minds are very deceptive. You know, our minds tell us lies. And if we believe our minds, then it's difficult for us to be truthful in our speech. So the first thing in truthfulness is to be able to look within and see what our minds are saying. And there's determination. That's, and it goes with this idea of patience as well, that continuing to show up. It's not, I'm going to make this happen, but it's, I'm not going to give up. You know, I'm, I'm going to keep showing up you know, uh, through the ups and downs of practice, of recovery, of life. Um, the next one is loving kindness. The wish for all beings to be happy. And this arises out of our own reflection on our own wish to be happy. And our realization, one of the kind of core insights of Buddhism, that I'm not different from you. That all beings, certainly all human beings, want happiness. So we start to, when we connect with that understanding, Something opens up in us and there's just this willingness to offer that. And the last paramita is equanimity. This is the mind that is undisturbed, the mind that is peaceful, um, the mind that accepts things as they are in this moment. What I mean by that is acceptance is about this is how things are right now if I'm fighting the present moment, I'm creating suffering. But that doesn't mean I can't make other choices you know, to, to change the way things are in a skillful way. 
Okay, that leaves us just a couple minutes. So if anybody has a question or a comment or anything, I'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah. Thank you for your comment about the giants because I really suffered the other night. And I asked my, you know, I went into the game thinking I didn't want to care about the outcome. But it was do or die. <laughs> how can you not care? And so how Only do if you, you don't not, care can you not care. And how do you not suffer? You can't make yourself not care. I know, but how do you not suffer in a situation like that? Because I didn't want to be attached to an outcome, yet I wanted them to win. So, again, I would say, to me, it's not about I'm not going to be attached. It's about understanding, oh, this is coming, this discomfort, this sadness is coming because of attachment. Oh, I just saw the truth. Okay, it hurts. But what's the other thing we know? It's impermanent. Or as we say in baseball, wait till next year. But, you know, that's right. you know yeah, I, I mean, that's, that I think is, you know, both on that momentary basis and also in the longer view, it's impermanent. You know, that, that was the part that was missing for me, the impermanence. Because yeah. I thought I was just going to suffer for the, until yeah, the next season. Yeah, you're going to be depressed all winter. Yeah. No. Wait till spring training and you'll finally cheer up. And that kind of goes with what we were talking about maybe before out there is like underneath all that, it's because you really love the Giants. Like there's love. Yeah, like underneath yeah that. that's like right. There's exactly. like this passion and this Yeah, and I think that's the other thing that I try to take with sports is enjoy and, and really feel the joy and really enjoy the joy. I mean, what you know, one of the weird things about sports is that you know especially you know baseball is just so insane you know they play all these games and then they go all the everybody's a loser except one team right and so 31 teams or whatever it is are disappointed at the end and how you know if that if that's your view then why would you want to be a sports fan you know it's like it means that most of the time you're going to ultimately lose. So, uh, you know, you have to kind of take pleasure in, you know, one pitch at a time or something. I don't know. <laughs> there were some joyful moments, big time. Yeah, yeah. Can't believe that's what you <laughs> that's what you got out of my Dharma talk. Good to know. Good to know. Next time I'll just talk sports the whole time. Sports talk Dharma. Practicing sympathetic joy. Yeah. Oh yeah, can you have sympathetic joy for the team that won? What an order, I can't go through with it. Well, it always real it's very striking to me that thing that obviously I, I think it's become kind of a tradition now in baseball that the losing team stays in the dugout and watches the winning team celebrate. You ever notice that? 
isn't that interesting? I mean, talk about suffering. I mean, but it's, I, I really respect that. I really honor that. I think it's really respectful on their part to say, you know, you guys won and you get to celebrate and we're going to, you know, we're going to be, you know, present for that. We're going we're gonna to witness that. And, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, maybe use that as motivation, they say. But still, I think it's more about really being respectful and witnessing. I mean, you know, baseball is one sport where they, you know, they don't shake hands after the games or anything. I mean, if you go to NFL games, the guys all get in a prayer circle after the game. Different teams, they're all, they hug each other, you know, after they've been ki- trying to kill each other. Okay, see, I can talk about sports all night. I was going to go see Tiger Woods play yesterday, but the bum dropped out. All right, let's close with a little bit of loving kindness for all beings, especially all presidential candidates. Certainly one way of evoking a response that's in harmony with the Dharma is to consider how people are creating suffering for themselves. So when someone is full of hate, and greed. We know what hate and greed feel like. We all have it inside us. It's painful. And while someone might, in worldly terms, become successful when driven by those forces, we know that there is no peace for them. There is no real joy. There is only the grinding need for more, for more power, for more wealth. and the other need to destroy that which is in conflict with our goals. So no matter our outward actions to stop harm, The Buddha really pushes us. He's very forceful in his teachings to say that we should never hate, that that hatred will never come to good. 
one of the great challenges of the Dharma is to try to live up to that teaching. So may we at least carry this ideal in our hearts and as best we can not feed our own anger and resentment. May all beings be free from hatred, free from greed, free from all forms of suffering. Just uh, for you to know, unfortunately, I'm going to have a substitute teacher again next month. Um, I, I don't like missing this class, but I'm going to be in Alaska, of all places. So if you think you're suffering, think of me. I don't know what it's going to be like there in November. But uh, Walt Opie from the Berkeley uh, Dharma and Recovery Group will be teaching. So... Um, I hope you will come and support the group, and I will see you again in December. Travel safely in these wet days.